0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most interesting, intelligent, and innovative radio station. Today, live from the studio, we're broadcasting the fourth episode of our monthly programme, responding to a gap in British cultural coverage by placing the arts in their historical, cultural, social, and political contexts. Today, we're focusing on the latter. Looking at government cultural policies in the neoliberal era and how ideas about cultural democratisation that go back to the 19th century and how these have intersected with Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and the World Transformed events organised by Momentum around the recent party conferences. Before we launch into that, I just want to mention the campaign to save the cinema museum in Kennington, which, like so many of London's important art spaces, is under threat from developers, after the building's owners, South London and Maudsley NHS Trust, announced that they would sell to the highest bidder when the museum's lease runs out in March next year. For those who don't know, the museum has been based for the last 19 years in the former Lambeth Workhouse, where Charlie Chaplin spent part of his childhood and hosts all sorts of screenings and events, as well as housing numerous treasures from over a century of British film. So if you want to know more about the campaign to save it, please see their site at www.cinemamuseum.org.uk to sign their petition, donate or otherwise get involved. With that said, on to today's show. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and my three guests are all well-placed to discuss Britain's cultural and political institutions, the relationship between artistic and intellectual visions and government policies, and how culture might effectively be democratised. Lorraine Leeson is an artist whose practice involves working with communities for social change and also teaches an MA in art and social practice. She's chair of Arts for Labour and formerly part of the Greater London Council before its dissolution in 1986. Most recently, she's the author of Art, Process, Change, published by Routledge earlier this year. Hilary Rainwright was also involved with the GLC and is is a fellow of the Transnational Institute, a fellowship of critical scholars based in Amsterdam. She's also a sociologist, feminist, academic and journalist, and author of the forthcoming book, A New Politics from the Left, published by Polity. He's also co-editor of Red Pepper magazine. Hassan Muhammad Ali has worked in theatre, written on racism and imperialism, the struggles of working-class Muslims and how schools fail black children, as well as helping to devise the arts and Islam programme during his time as a senior, see, uh, senior arts council officer. He has also written a short biography of William Morris, and is currently Arts Manager for a new charitable trust called the Aziz Foundation. So welcome to the show all three of you, thanks for joining me uh, here in the studio today. Good to uh, I <laughs> wanted to, to start by talking about the arts policies proposed by Britain's major political parties ahead of this year's SNAP general election. I think it's fair to say that a Thatcherite attitude to the arts, that they should be profitable or at least economically viable above all else, has dominated British cultural policy for the last 30 years or more, uh, with some sort of notable and maybe qualified exceptions during Tony Blair's first term that we'll come on to later. As Benjamin Ram noted in an article for Freeze this summer, the role of Minister for Culture, Media and Sport has more recently been filled by ambitious junior ministers with a taste for austerity. The current incumbent, Karen Bradley, is a chartered accountant. Her three predecessors, John Whittingdale, Sajid Javid and Maria Miller, all trained as economists. Uh, And the other MP to hold this role since the Conservatives returned to power in 2010 was Jeremy Hunt, who is now Secretary of State for Health. Uh, The role, incidentally, was created during the previous Conservative administration uh, by John Major in 1992. Um, Its first holder was David Mellor, who nicknamed it the Minister for Fun. Um, I just thought you'd all want to be reminded of uh, of him and his work. So the Tory manifesto for June's election promised to um, ensure that Britain's world class, world beating culture um, would be allowed to kind of show itself as a global force for good through its leading institutions having the resources they need to amplify Britain's voice on the world stage, Um, a rhetoric which I think it's fair to say is in line with the political motivations behind Brexit. In a partial break with the austerity programme that slashed local authority funding for the arts and not just under Conservative councils either, uh, in 2013 under a Labour control council there was a proposed 100% cut to Newcastle's culture budget. But in a partial break with with this austerity, uh, the Conservatives have proposed more investment outside of London, uh, with a rather Victorian-sounding Great Exhibition of the North planned for next year, as well as the development of a new concert hall in Edinburgh and the relocation of Channel 4 outside of London. Like Labour and the Liberal Democrats, the Tories are committed to keeping Channel 4 in public ownership and retaining the free access to museums and galleries introduced during Tony Blair's first term. The Liberal Democrats plan to protect art subjects in the school curriculum um, in the face of Tory plans for 90% of students to study a combination of academic GCSEs, as defined by the uh, International Baccalaureate, excludes art subjects by 2025. They also proposed the funding of creative enterprise zones to grow and regenerate cultural output across the UK and share Labour's commitment to help live music venues, um, over 40% of which have closed in London in the last decade, for example. Perhaps surprisingly, Uh, Neither the Green Party nor the Nationalist Parties in Scotland or Wales mention the arts or culture in their most recent manifestos, uh, while the UK Independence Party make passing reference to their coastal towns task force raising funds for new arts and heritage facilities uh, with little further discussion of what this will actually entail. All of this uh, brings us on to the concept of the democratisation of culture and um, its relationship Uh, with Labour's Manifesto of the Arts, uh, for the arts even. Um, Jeremy Corbyn launched Labour's Creative Future for All Manifesto uh, in Hull, the UK's city of culture, uh, this year. Uh, Launched the manifesto on the 22nd of May, uh, a date that was sadly overshadowed by the bombings in Manchester. Uh, But it marked a sort of significant break with arts policies proposed during the 2015 um, election campaign campaign. Corbyn spoke about how in every one of us there is a poet, a writer, a singer of songs or an artist. He talks about his own uh, writing of poetry and uh, love of kind of abstract painting, uh, which I think in terms of policy and in terms of personality has uh, you know marked a kind of a significant change with the way um, the Labour Party has both produce its arts policy and in which its MPs have sort of sold their relationship with culture. Uh, Obviously, another significant change is the um, rise of momentum uh, as a sort of, you know, a pressure group, a sort of forum for generating and discussing ideas. So I wondered if we could talk about the World Transformed conference this year, um, the arts um, panels that were held as part of the World Transformed and what sort of processes were initiated there? Um, so yeah, I will. Uh, I will throw it open at this point.
1: <laughs> well, I thought it was very interesting um, the interest that there was in the arts, um, and to see the number of people who came to the discussions. I mean, the first discussion there were one hundred and forty people, um, and also, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has talked about the arts at the heart of Labour policy. So I think we all take heart from that and that the fact that uh, the Labour Party are looking at uh, not just um, access to the arts, which is the theme that has run through the, this current government and all previous governments for, you know, for the last few decades. It's about how ordinary people can look at good art and get to it. And actually I think what we're talking about now is art as a, a very different sort of transformative tool um and at this uh, these um events at the world transformed um people were asked for their ideas um for a manifesto and altogether over 100 ideas were gathered and i thought the most interesting one um there were many interesting ones i suppose i, I would be proud to be part of i was proud to be part of this um you know and uh, somebody said um, to about recognising the importance of art and inter- interdisciplinary creativity to the making of a decent thinking and responsive society. I think that's where we need to be going with the arts.
2: And just to add to that, I think the other distinctive feature about this process was that the people that came were, were, were artists of all kinds. It, in a way, bore out very much Jeremy Corbyn's statement about, you know, there's an artist, a poet, a musician in all of us. Because there were, you know, as um, Lorraine said, over 100 people. And they were all in different ways artists. I mean, some were paid as an art- artist, some were um, campaigning as artists. You know, there's a very creative disabled person who talked about, you know, disabled people people in the arts and the importance of of non-discriminatory funding and and support. There were um, graffiti artists, you know, people involved in the everyday creation of art. And I think that's a sign of some new process of a much deeper democratisation that's opening up with the Corbyn Labour Party, which is a recognition that change isn't simply about government. So we weren't there simply saying, what do we want the government to do? We were there saying, this is what we're doing. This is, you know, there's a movement of, of creative artists in, in civil society, you know, in everyday life, and that we want government support for that. So we see government, a Labour government, as an enabling, you know, just as you could say that, that Tory governments from Thatcher onwards, well, and before, have enabled the market. We're not simply saying the state should do everything. We're saying what a, a, a Labour government should be doing is enabling this incredible creativity uh, to, to flourish and to be supported.
3: Yeah, um, just to follow on from that, I think what Jeremy Corbyn has done is he's, he's kind of, not in a, uh, in, a, in a sort of top-down sense, but he's kind of given permission for this debate to take place. And it's a debate that hasn't really seriously taken place for quite a number of decades, really, because under both the Tories and under under New Labour, you kind of had really, to a lesser or greater extent, kind of hand-me-down arts policies, I think. And like uh, like you said, that ones uh, which, you know, uh, the people, the, the ministers who had that portfolio didn't really see it as being a transformative agenda they're in charge of, really you know, a caretaking agenda that someone else has set up. So I think Jeremy has given um, permission for this debate to take place. And what's good about it, I think, is that we can strip it right back down to what we think we need. As opposed to the structures which we which uh, we inherit, so I mean that's the important thing. I mean the great thing about the world transformed actually was, yeah, it was amazing the number of suggestions that came up, and they were really diverse, and and we I think we sorted them under about four or five headings, but they were really, you know, quite extraordinary actually, and uh, we can you know it's not one person could think of them all. It was a collective. Um, brainstorming if you like um, but also what I what interested me was there's lots of what I would call arts and cultural activists from the 70s and the 80s who who had actually been present and it had re- and it had remained in their minds the excitement that we had during the 70s and the 80s when grassroots arts or politically engaged arts or arts that really came out of working-class communities were, was flourishing Um in London and and in other places. And um, they kind of, for me, they kind of held a memory of of um, the possibilities which we explored before. And for me, that's important because I don't think we have to start from scratch. Uh, but actually, there's a lot for us to build on.
0: Yeah, I mean, that leads very nicely onto um, something I wanted to talk about here, which is the kind of the very long... Uh, The kind of very long roots of this idea of cultural democratization of kind of the arts as a kind of socially transformative force like Hassan. I know you've written on um, on William Morris uh, Mm -hmm. and obviously that takes Morris's work takes these ideas back, you know further back than the formation of the Labour Party in the Mm -hmm. 1890s and early 1900s Um, So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the um, the sort of legacy of figures like William Morris or the um, you know, cultural uh, theorist Raymond Williams mm. um, and, you know, how their ideas are kind of relevant now, how they've been marginalised and how we might bring them back towards a sort of mainstream of, mm. of conversation about these, these subjects. Well, I'll
3: kick off, but I'm sure Lorraine and Hilary want, want to come in. I mean, the thing I found out when I was um, writing or researching about William Morris is you have to understand the period. And for me, it's quite a... Um, it's a period in history, which we, which I can grasp, because if you think about it, you have the fall of the Chartist movement, which is the first mass movement in history. And then you kind of have um, what the historian John Saville called the consolidation of the capitalist state. In other words, if you like, the Victorian drive towards industry, riding completely roughshod mm-hmm. over all the social formations that had come before, the, um, the pulling in of the people from the countryside into the city, Uh, the scenarios that Engels was talking about in terms of Manchester um, and the feeling that nothing could be done about it It is a kind of neoliberal dread, mid-Victorian neoliberal dread. And that was the society that William Morris grew up in as an artist. And of course, he turned to politics in the last half of his life, um, actually through um, wanting to preserve from um, Victorian disfiguration ancient monuments uh, and then he moved into a much more radical agenda. But I guess what I got out of Morris was this notion of he understood that there was an alienation of, of working people, human beings, um, from their creative and imaginative capacity um, b- because of the drudgery of labour. And uh, if you like the capitalist um, 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 profit-making system, and his his instinct was to try and put them back together again, and the notion that actually we needed a society, and he could see all this disappearing before his eyes, we needed a society where human beings' imaginative capacity could be brought back in line with the natural world, and in once it's that was all he was about, and in you know in the, in the modern day, where we're talking about the um, uh, era of the Anthropocene, the notion of actually putting human beings back together in relation to nature, seems to me quite a profound insight that that Morris had. And of course, the other part about Morris is that because he was a revolutionary socialist, he was determined that if you like, uh, working class people shouldn't be the subject of change but the object of change and the motor of change therefore it all went back to them and their creative capacity and uh, I believe in one sense that's why the, the, some of the works that he wrote particularly obviously his, his utopian fiction um, was so um, uh, so engaged working class people the, and it is that notion of bring us back into harmony with ourselves so I think there's something very profound in what Morris had to, had to say which we, we need to build on
2: Yes, just to, to very much reinforce what Hassan has said. I mean, he, he, Marx had this notion of species being, you mm. know, the, the inherent character of human beings, which is their creativity. And William Morris had this notion of useful labour, not useless toil. And he also had this idea of mm. that everything in our lives surrounding us should be of should be useful and beautiful. That's right. So his his ideas about culture were very um integral to everyday life everyday work everyday living Um, and so it that's in a way that was the underpinning of his revolutionary socialism so it was a a revolutionary socialism that was not about a different kind of state although that would be entailed but a different kind of society so news from nowhere which is a wonderful utopia is about imagining london based on these principles of you know, useful labor, not useless toil and and everything being of beauty and and useful. so he he is an inspiration, I think. Um, and I'll come on to Raymond Williams in a minute because I think you know William Morris inspired both him and Edward Thompson. and in a way, William Morris represented a a different tradition in the labor movement from the one that became dominant. so he he was he was not so focused on, gaining governmental power he was focused on changes in everyday life which i imagine from reading news from nowhere he imagined would underpin a different kind of parliament a different kind of democracy so he was he was if you like the the granddaddy of democratizing culture definitely uh, and I would uh,
1: like to go back to the the World Transformed and say one of the values that people picked out of all those ideas that came up, um, the, out of the three most important values they saw for the arts and culture, was the use of art and culture to create transformational political change. Now, I think it's a very wise move of the um, of the Labour Party to be looking at the arts in everything, because the arts are about creativity. Of course, creativity isn't only about the arts, but to use the arts to bring back creativity into a lot of things in which creativity is now missing. And if a society is going to move forward, it needs all its citizens to be working at their creative optimum, not just a few at the top. Whose creativity might also be lacking. Um, but we actually need to be harnessing this creativity to move forward. And so I think, in a way, supporting people's creativity isn't just an altruistic position. The arts aren't additional. Taking a position which means that you are um, expressing yourself, but you're also expressing the ideas of the society in which you live is very important. And I just want to bring up the fact that when the, um, after, um, Uh, after apartheid in in South Africa the new Bill of Rights that was introduced on the Number eight to the Bill of Rights was freedom of expression, which includes artistic expression. Now, that was eighth after important things like um, uh, 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 freedom from slavery, you know, the, the right to life. I mean, the, the most fundamental things. But number eight was the freedom of expression because it isn't additional. It is about uh, as a human being and as a group and as a society, we need to create ourselves and and our identities and be able to be in the world and imagine ourselves in the world and the world we
2: want to be in. But and, and, yes, now I agree with that. And then that leads on to saying, what are the economic and social conditions of that? Because there are different kinds of blockages to freedom of expression, aren't there? I mean, there's sort of literally authoritarian government and a kind of unfree press, but there's also poverty and inequality and and drudgery, useless toil that, that actually blocks freedom of expression. So there's, if you like, a shallow notion of freedom of expression, which is sort of the need for formal democracy and a plural press. But then there's a deeper notion, which is the need for economic equality mm. and for um, a minimum degree of useless toil and for that to be shared out and in a sense the disappointment with South Africa is that even though the movement against apartheid in the civics and so on with people like Steve Biko really was about a deeper idea the end result has been a very superficial kind of um, democracy well hardly sometimes a democracy
3: Yes, um, uh, just on Hillary's point about um about freedom of expression, our, our conception of it being rather narrow and just about denying, um, if you like, um, censorship and things like that. I think that's very true, and I think if you look at arts policy over the past uh, few decades, the 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 audience that's been served has been very very narrow, and there's all been all sorts of um, arguments put forward as to why that should be the case. So, although, for example, when I was at the Arts Council, there was there was always Um, schemes to do outreach to various communities, which is a horrible phrase, which I, I don't sign up to. But there was also a kind of underlying argument that, that said look like, for example, you know there's a, there's a, there's a mass of working class people who don't really understand the arts it's not really part of their lives. It's very difficult for us to to really get hold of them. Um, at the end of the day we can't force them to um, to go to a gallery or to or to go and see a piece of theater or to enjoy this that, and the other. So you know at the end of the day really we can only do so much and of course that's the prerequisite of that is that if you like, um they can only partake of what's on the menu. No <laughs> what's not on the menu. Um if if you know, if what you like is not on the menu, then basically I'm sorry, you go without. Uh you have to go somewhere else. You know, you you know, um you, you do some other cultural activity like football, and that's your thing. So, you know, I think freedom of expression is has been um or, or if you like. Access to, to the arts has been done on a very narrow basis for which whole communities are kind of dropped off the menu, I think. You know I, mean?
0: I think it really puts the cart before the horse as well, because I I think it's, it's, it's correct to say that often with regard the way culture works, people don't know they want something until it kind of it appears to them. It's made open to them and to kind of say, oh, this demographic don't want that type of art. So don't make it open to them, kind of completely fails to comprehend the way in which um, in which culture works. I wonder if this is a good point to turn back momentarily to um, some ideas around culture that were prevalent in Britain um, just after the Second World War. Um, I think we can talk here about the work of, of Raymond Williams, but also... Um, Sort of history of the elites and people within the labour movement and a sort of popular movement after the war. Um, I wondered if if Hillary or Lorraine you had had anything you wanted to add about Williams or some of those other other issues.
2: Yes, I, I, I can try from memory. I <laughs> haven't got my you know sort of text here, but I think um, he had a, a, a wonderful notion of a, a long revolution, a kind of process of um, constant and developing expression of the desire for self-government which I think again I can't quite remember but certainly my interpretation of it is that uh, much of its origins actually came from the experience of the war, you know, that the Second World War was you know, though historically in terms of the sort of official culture it's associated with Churchill, actually it was a people's war. And there's a wonderful book by um, Angus Calder, but several others too, that describe, you know, the ways in which the, the victory against fascism depended on not just the troops, but also the people in the arms factories, the women and communities um, that were, you know, keeping morale up and keeping guard as it were, and also actually being involved in observations about where the enemy was. Um, and and that sort of produced a self-confidence that meant that after the war, people, I mean, it's captured by um, Ken Loach's spirit of 45, which in a sense wasn't simply about the creation of the welfare state by the government, but was this spirit of self-confidence that if we can defeat the Nazis, we can defeat the enemies of, un, of, of employment, of you know, the, the enemies of, which consisted of unemployment, poverty, inequality, you know, the enemies of the the people in the thirties. And in a sense that explains why um Churchill was rejected in spite of, you know, him being seen as the sort of the um you know the, the, the winner of the war. Actually, you know, a lot of working class people just thought of him as a complete bastard, you know, because he'd he'd been part of the um Excuse my language. Sorry, Ofcom. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he'd he um, been part of the suppression of the trade unions. Mm-hmm. He'd been part of the uh, economic policy that led to unemployment and, and and massive poverty the 30s. So people voted. They voted for themselves. They voted for Attlee and for a Labour government because they, they knew that that would, that would be a government of, of the people. But in a way it it was disappointing because actually it was quite um reluctant to, to actually share power with the people, to to make the coal mines and the other nationalised industries under democratic control. So there was a lot of, if you like, um creativity there as a result of the experiences of the war that wasn't really built on. And I think you know, in a way what happened to the idea of self government was that the, cre- the material conditions created by those changes of, in terms of the welfare state and education and health and so on, they created the possibility of something more, which in a sense you could say, this may be slight exaggeration, but that didn't really gain expression until 68, mm. when you had a generation who'd been brought up to take for granted the achievements of 45. But actually, their in a way, their creativity would out, as it were. And they would say, well, actually, there's more to life than simply, you know, m- free milk and free health care. We want to make use of that to, to be creative. And so Raymond Williams was a, certainly, I was, you know, very much a student of 68 and Raymond Williams became quite an important resource for us because he had a very clear notion of culture being ordinary. You know, he recognized this daily creativity that both Hassan and Lorraine have talked about you know in the way that people create meanings in their lives you know they they it's a sort of instinctive everyday cultural creation uh, and so that was his his notion that underpinned um a lot of the the ideas of the new left which EP Thompson also expressed you know he was very very um taken and excited about cultural movements you know the 50s was pretty sort of dull movement politically i mean okay there was the uh, nye bevan fighting the the corner of the labor left but it seemed you know like you never had it so good all that that was a sort of superficial discourse But Thompson recognised that actually there was something going on culturally, the beats, you know, all the different sort of cultural movements, which then did become evident politically. You know, I I wasn't around then, but, you know, the Aldermaston March was a march not just of politicians or just of political activists, but it was an incredibly cultural experience. People dressed differently. People, you know, played music. It was a sort of cultural break.
0: Listeners who might not be entirely familiar with the Aldermaster March, mm. can we just clarify uh, exactly what it was?
2: Well, it was a march against the bomb, yeah, because uh, Attlee for all the virtues of the welfare state, also you know initiated the atomic bomb, yeah. and you know people didn't want further war, let alone atomic war. And uh, so I, can't, I think 56, maybe it was... So I think
0: it might be at 59. 59, I'm not 59. sure. I think 59 yeah.
2: was like the high initial high point of its impact on the mm. Labour Party when then finally Nye Bevan sort of sold them out and said he wouldn't go naked, i.e. without a nuclear weapon, uh, into the negotiating chamber. So in a way that marked the kind of... Turn of CND and mm. Aldermaston away from the Labour Party and towards a much more extra parliamentary sort of movement. But I think CND um, and the Aldermaston March started in the mid fifties. Yeah. Um, so it was it was, if you like, the first. Well, I'm maybe exaggerating because of my age, but um, I think it was one of the first really extra parliamentary movements, and it was very cultural in its character. You know, it was very much an expression of a sort of unofficial but everyday culture.
0: So having kind of explored some of the longer term routes um, of what's happening in the present, having looked at Morris and Williams um, and you know, the late 19th century through to the mid 20th, I wonder if we could uh, spend a little bit of time talking about the um, the Greater London Council, which had quite a um, you know, significant impact on um, cultural policy in the kind of greater London area in the 80s, particularly with kind of working with kind of artists and practitioners of colour um, and kind of marginalised communities. Um, you know, it's very interesting seeing um, with the Corbyn movement, with the world transformed, the way in which these very long term um, histories are being brought into play, uh, the particular interest in the 70s and 80s as a time of kind of. Um, avenues that weren't able to be explored for one reason or another, Um, you know, coupled with a a real kind of awareness of the kind of current cultural climate and a kind of ignoring of this kind of long 1990s that seemed to go on from sort of 1989 through to, well, quite recently really, 2015. Um, So yeah, maybe if we could talk a bit more about the legacy of the GLC and what work was done there and how that might inform what's, what's happening now.
1: Well, the eighties was a very interesting time um, in London. Um, the for those who don't know, who are too young to remember, um, I mean, the Greater London Council, uh, which was pre-da- predated the uh, Greater London, uh, the well, GLA as we know it now. Um, uh, you know, it uh, in the beginning of the eighties, it went Labour, but it went left Labour under Ken Livingstone, and. A whole range of policies were brought in across the board, um, and what they did, which isn't dissimilar to what Labour is looking at now, um, is that they, where they didn't have influence, they supported people who were out there working and campaigning. Um, and so in the arts, I know the arts more than other areas, but to, to talk about the arts, You know, at that time when this administration took over, there was £5 million going out to the arts to five different centres of excellence. What the GLC did was take two of those millions and put one into um, uh, community arts and another into ethnic arts. And then they set up committees that were proper council committees with representatives of a whole range of different arts arts disciplines, arts groups. And so I was privileged enough to be on the Community Arts Subcommittee. And what it did was change the culture of London for that period. It was amazing, is all I can say, because rather than the arts just being something you went to see, they were funding all sorts of different organisations. Now, anybody could apply to the GLC as long as they're an organisation. Legally, they needed to be that. But they were just looking for their only criteria, really, was that the arts would support local people, would support people. And um, and so therefore they weren't they weren't dictating what it should be. They weren't setting targets. They weren't trying to channel you into a particular way of doing things. So they were out there looking for what was going on. And very different to the way the arts are funded now, uh, whereby you have to fill in very, very extensive application forms and you have to meet targets. And, that you know, even if it looks like a very open uh, bid, you're, you're actually channeled into ways of doing things. This was not like that at all, but it was still critical. So they basically had a, a committee of artists uh, from all different disciplines and the um, shortlisted applicants uh, applications were... Interrogated by this group, they everyone was visited. In fact, there was a moment of uh, peer assessment that wasn't just happening at the GLC. It was happening also in the Arts Council and the regional arts associations. It makes a lot of sense that so applications are assessed by other people who are specialists in that field and understand that field, and um, and. Then they would come back and there would be really hot debates in the council chamber about who to fund. Um, I remember one in particular uh, because, as I say, there are all different sorts of arts, fun, uh, arts approaches that were coming up. One of the applications were, was from the Dagger and Batten Twirlers and there was this big debate as to whether this really was a cultural activity or whether really this was just what girls had to do because they couldn't play the sport. And therefore, was it, you know, was it putting girls down to support that because it is, they should be supported to do the sport instead? Um, we discussed that. Meanwhile, the dagger and baton dwellers were outside the door um, doing their dancing and twirling their batons. And uh, and I'm very pleased to say they got funded and so a whole range of things were funded and throughout London there were festivals, there were events, there was all sorts of things coming to the fore across the different disciplines. And even though it only lasted, well the GLC only lasted ten, uh, five years in fact, and that was because they were so successful and so popular across all the different policies. And others can talk about, Hillary, I'm sure, can say something about some of the other areas uh, that were being developed there. But it was so popular that um, uh, that the, the government, the Thatcher government that was in power, had to try and get rid of them. And uh, they did everything, of course, they employed their advertisers, that Saatchi and Saatchi, um, to mount a big campaign um, against them. And um, uh, we heard about Red Ken, you know, he was so vilified in the press. But actually, in the end, it was what they were doing that was popular. Um, In the end, the government had to abolish the whole tier of metropolitan authorities across the country in order to get rid of the GLC. So for 10 years, London had no government. We eventually got back the GLA, but we got it without um, uh, funding for the arts. Mm. I'm afraid that was Tony Blair, who was responsible for leaving the arts out of Mm. uh, the GLA funding. Um, But, um, yes, it was an amazing moment. And uh, I'm sure Hilary's got something to say about the way the uh, Popular Planning Unit particularly, um, you know,
2: integrated Mm. with
1: with what was going on there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing in a way, it goes back to William Morris and... And Raymond Williams, that in a way the the division between arts and everything else just collapsed because that idea of art as a sort of special thing away from everyday life was completely contrary to the way in which this, if you like, new left thought. I mean, it, it. it was accepted by the more traditional left in the past, where they had separate arts departments. And although there was a separate arts department in the um, GLC, or Arts Committee, it wasn't it wasn't sort of separate in its daily activity. We were in constant contact with um, the arts people, the councillor and the officials. And in a way, art and culture was part of everyday life. So. In our, I was part of the economic, um, industry and employment committee, and we we had a, a unit, the unit that I was involved in, called the popular planning unit, whose whole premise was the creativity of the people. So our job was to support local people to develop. Um, their own alternatives. So, you know, we'd be involved in, say, supporting a campaign against the city airport because it wasn't really going to be providing jobs, adequate jobs, uh, for the people in, um, in North Woolwich and Silvertown and so on. Um, so I remember going to a campaign meeting. But it was clear when you talk to people, and I think this is a general point, that when people resist, they also have an idea, an imagination about what could be And so our approach was to say, okay, we'll support, you know, we're not in favour of an airport in terms of the manifesto of the GLC, but what do you want and how are you going to, you know, what alternative do you have that you're going to put to the inquiry? And they said, well, we want to talk to everybody in the area. So we want support to create a people's plan centre in North Woolwich that people will come to with their ideas. And so, you know, people, the people running the campaign were people who, like the GLC, believed in the creativity of the people in that area and they got together ideas and, and Lorraine, Lorraine's work as an artist helped to stimulate that and helped to p- stimulate people's imagination and give legitimacy to the idea of an alternative and the existing set up being so unacceptable and the domination of, you know, a purely commercial approach to that area without regard to the people. And they produced this People's Plan for the Royal Docks, which actually was a, was a thing of beauty. I mean, I haven't got it with me in, if this is radio, but it was actually a very beautiful document that inspired people. Uh, and it, it had an impact. Certainly, people in the area supported it generally. There was a minority that were in favour of the airport. And the inspector was influenced and impressed by it and it led him to put further restrictions on what kind of an airport it could be. Um, so that, that was a model for, for really a different approach to economic policy that built on people's everyday creativity.
3: Yeah, just three very small points to add to that. Um, firstly, how different um, arts policy in the GLC was under Livingstone as compared to what had gone before? For example, um, previous Tory administrations who've been running running the jail, so complete volte face. That's the first. So it just shows you how you can quite quickly, if you like, um, implement radical um, uh, reforms around arts and culture. Um, secondly, the role of social movements at the time, whether that be the, um, the LGBTI movement. Um, uh, theatre companies like Gay Sweatshop coming through and being funded and so and so forth. Or even, if you like, if you can call the uprising in Brixton in 1981, a social movement, the notion of a flowering of black theatre during that particular time. And actually how all those people who were involved in black theatre went on to do extraordinary things. So you know, it wasn't just a case of throwing money at, uh, at people for the sake of it, or because of the cut of risk it, or anything like that. You know, it's because you know the best people are coming forward um, to work in the arts and giving that opportunity. The third thing is outside London, because I was outside working outside of London at the time, just beginning my career as a actor and director, uh, is theatre and education, community theatre, outside of London. Every um, um, Every town or city nearly had a theatre and education company and, and or a community theatre company who were taking work into communities and across schools. So I was taking um, theatre and education into the mining pit villages around Wigan and uh, in, the, in the communities around Rochdale in the mid to late 1980s, taking very radical educational theatre work, um, all wiped out um uh later on by thatcher and Unge- education reform act but what i guess i'm trying to say is that actually uh, london yeah there's an extraordinary th- uh, laboratory if you like going on there but across the country also there were some extraordinary um advances in terms of actually um engaging um, uh, working-class communities with with arts Great. Um, we've got 15 minutes
0: left here. You're listening to Suite 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest radio station. We've been discussing the concept of cultural democratisation um, and various sort of intellectual and social and political histories that might feed into a new vision for the arts, new attitudes to the arts and their kind of transformative power in British society. Um Hassan, I'm gonna turn back to you to talk a bit about, um, we haven't got too long left, but I want to talk a bit about uh, what happened after the abolition of the GLC and similar kind of bodies around the country, um, the kind of increased importance of the Arts Council in the wake of this. And uh, I'm sure Hilary and Lorraine will want to join, join a discussion about kind of new labor ideas, about culture, evaluation of the arts in terms of their sort of social worth some of Tony Blair's government's kind of regional policies for the arts, so we
3: could we could launch into that. Um, well, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, we've got. <laughs> <15 minutes. laughs> I mean, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that actually the the context I think is the attrition uh, around funding for the arts um, in local by local authorities. That's the first thing because. Um, and that's been going on for a number of years. And in one sense, what that's allowed to do is for the Arts Council to emerge as the singular player, as it were, in terms of subsidised arts funding. And in one sense, what that's also done, because if you like, the local authorities aren't around the table, is it's taken a democratic um, impulse out of decision making. You know, they, they used to be at the table. They could make grants. They could fund or, or uh, co-fund big theatres or, or orchestras or whatever it might be, dance companies, were then taken out of the agenda, it's very difficult now to see where the democratic um, uh, um, decision-making lies in terms of, for example, the Arts Council's decision. So decisions. So, although the Arts Council is quite rightly at arm's length from the DCMS, from the Department of Culture, in other words, it can make its own decisions, it's very difficult to see... Um, how there's any democratic control over over those decisions. And therefore, I think that's been, in one sense, a context in which um, we've, I think we've seen, even despite the best efforts of the Arts Council, we've seen a, a real concentration of the arts amongst what I would call the recognised high arts and very much a, a dwindling of experimentation and arts companies on the ground um, taking uh, um, having some kind of artistic autonomy over what they do. Mm. I think what Lorraine said earlier on in terms of Arts Council funding is that the hoops that you have to go through, actually, if you, you, know, if you really look at them, they have kind of, behind them, they have, they have notions of what, what is real art and what's not. In other words, have questions of taste. They're not objective measures. Um, and those, those notions of taste, which are implicit, in that relationship you might have with a funding body like the Arts Council drive you down a particular route. For me, what's important is that artists at grassroots level have some kind of autonomy over what they do. Otherwise, to be honest, you don't get innovation, you don't get experimentation, you don't get the reach you want, you don't get the engagement you want, unless you allow those people to do what they want. And to um, come up with great ways of doing things, and great expressions, and new aesthetics, whatever it might be. So, you know, I think we've, you know, we've got a hollowing out. And I think if there's an arts policy to come, it's got to really, it's got to take a, it's got to take note of that.
1: And I think what you said about the uh, notion of um, the the good art, the good aesthetics, it goes under the banner of good practice. Mm-hmm. Or, or, um, and I, I've been quite shocked when I've seen. Um, what seems to be a distillation of what is considered good practice, then reapplied. So I remember once th- thinking, I'm not going to do this application. I really, what I do just doesn't fit. And somebody said to me, Don't you realise? where that has come from. It's from the sort of projects you were doing in the 80s. I'm saying, but I might do three projects in completely different ways. So don't make me do it in one way. And I think the irony of this is that the notion of distilling and reapplying so-called good practice, is it... Destroys this so-called innovation hmm. that is being sought because you can't tell artists what to do and then expect them to be creative about mm-hmm. it. You, they become delivery agents, and I think that's what's happening. And in the um, when New Labour came into power, um, they did understand um, something about the, the the social role that art could play. In fact, they almost under, understood it too well, right. because. You got a lot of uh, top-down funding for schemes such as regeneration schemes, where artists were involved, and but they were sort of brought in as a, a cheap way of delivering community development, and so again they were delivery agents. the The targets came from above. The artists, I remember young artists coming to me sometimes and saying, "I've done this really interesting project with these groups in the community and whatever, but now my funding's finished and I don't really know what to do next." And they're those people still hanging on who've been engaged in something, but actually funding came to an end and and so that didn't matter anymore. We have to get away from this. We have to put our trust in the creativity of ordinary people and of cultural practitioners who spent their lives developing ways of working with the creative process. So you have to have a sort of funding that supports, that asks, um uh but that actually doesn't tell you what it is you're meant to be doing.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, really good. And I, I just um add one thing that what New Labour did um was in a way continue Thatcher's destruction of the sort of economic infrastructure that had been created by the welfare state that did create conditions for people to create. I mean, I'm thinking of two examples. One is the whole sort of destruction of the benefit system. Now, I remember reading an article in NME, New Musical Express, about how it was in the course of campaigning to preserve the dole. You know, and actually they described how the Beatles, you know, they depended on the dole. Mm. You know, and, and any experimental art, probably if you look back at, you know, the initial years of formation and experimentation, they depended on that autonomy from the labour market, from useless toil, you know, to use Raymond Williams' idea. So that whole destruction of the the social security system that beverage and the welfare state had introduced with all their paternalism, but still they'd created economic conditions for that daily creativity to find expression. And then secondly, um, New Labour never brought back the kind of local authority-wide education authorities, mm. which used to fund peripatetic, you know, music teachers, drama teachers. So that idea of education as, as involving creative, mm. you know, um, teaching, I mean, teaching of the creative arts was basically ended by Thatcher and then reinforced by Tony Blair and in a way that was one of the things looking through the manifesto the bringing back of drama teaching music mm. teaching as part of free education
1: and
0: you grants rather than mm. crippling loans yes. for, for yeah. students as well yeah. That's, yeah. You
1: know. and in terms of that dismantling of, of the infrastructure that enabled artists to practice um, it, uh, the another thing which is a huge issue now obviously is housing mm. Mm. so yeah. a lot lot of artists including myself used to live in short life housing so that meant we had studio space Um, there were empty buildings that uh, could be taken over and used uh, for community arts there was space yes it was not very nice and you had to do it up yourself and whatever. But it was cheap and we could actually use it. And in The World Transformed, over and over again, this issue came up about housing and space t- to develop your practice. And I know with the students that I teach, it's one of their biggest issues when they leave because they don't know where to practice because most art takes some, requires somewhere to do it. Mm. And um, uh, and a lot of people are very innovative, but you know, there's a limit, and we need to somehow find a way to free up the spaces in which people
3: can uh, can, yeah. can undertake their practice. And I mean, and what you've seen instead, actually, is with regeneration, which you were talking about earlier, Anne, is that, that actually artists become the kind of shock troops of gentrification. Mm-hmm. So that it's turned 180 degrees. In one sense, you know. Not wittingly they've become the kind of they've become the kind of social cleansers of of um you know high priced inner city areas um Dalston, or i mean hackney you name it in london and and elsewhere and that's such a tragedy <laughs> that's, that developers can use if you like the um, uh, um the creative class as they're called. Yeah, to, 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 to help them in terms of clearing out working class people out of working class areas. I mean, this is where we've got to with the neoliberal kind of um, forces which are running rampant through um, through our communities. And through actually through the arts it, it is the kind of opposite of what we want to do.
0: Yeah, and I should point out that the uh, next month's edition of Suite 212 is going to be exploring this subject uh, in depth I mean obviously it very much ties into what we're talking about here but it's it's very much worthy of of extended um, discussion I mean you also talked about um, New Labour understanding the role of culture in this kind of regeneration stroke gentrification um, and you know, in particular I've always been very interested in New Labour's kind of engagement with this idea of the Bilbao effect where if they put a gallery in West Bromwich or Warsaw or mm. Middlesbrough or, or somewhere else it would, art would lead a sort of regeneration of, of that area and it's had very, very kind of mixed results I think. Uh, I think we've got five minutes left so Can I just
2: say one additional thing? Um, I hope it won't lead to bad language, but... Um, <laughs> if it's if up to it's you. It's a really good example, Hasan, of what you've been talking mm. about is, you know, I've, I cycle through Hackney Wick every day mm. to get to the Olympic mm. pool because my wonderful Lido in Lido in um, London Fields has been closed for a regeneration, but it's taking way too long, which is another question. But... Um, you know, you go through Hackney Wick and it's just a scandal. But luckily mm. there is some cultural resistance. So you come off the motorway bridge and you see this fantastic piece of graffiti which says, from shithouse to penthouse. <laughs> and it kind of summarises, it's kind of descriptive, yeah. I think. Sorry again, offcom mm. it's yeah. yeah. a direct but quote. But it, so. it summarises what's happened, you know, that you had all these kind of warehouses mm. that were being occupied mm. by artists, which were yeah. pretty bad conditions. Yeah. But now you've got... Massively expensive penthouses and very little space
3: for artists. There's a real bitterness there, though, isn't there, in that slogan as well, you know? Mm. <laughs> mm.
1: But it is being led... By developers and I think I saw it in one of the policies, I don't know if it was the, the Tory party or the Lib Dems but we're talking about the, the arts in, in regeneration and it's been very carefully orchestrated yeah. um, and I know that I, I work with somebody called Alberta Duman and we take our students, uh, he organised these trips to take our students to see how culture is moving eastward out of London mm. and we mm. went to Margate for example, mm. so how the arts are colonising areas and we went to visit artists in Margate who were getting no support whatsoever, Mm. the new incoming um, arts organisations and of course the Turner Contemporary. Mm. And the idea is you stick a big institute like the Turner Contemporary in a rundown place and everything else will follow. But everything else are the people who are the gallery going public and the cafes and whatever. It doesn't support what's going on in the arts on the ground.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think
2: before we end, we must just say that this process begun through The World Transformed is a process and we would really like all readers who've been interested in this discussion to become involved. And, you know, the best thing would be to contact um, Resonance, contact
0: Juliet. Well, if you go to our Twitter mm. feed, uh, twitter.com slash underscore 212, that's S-U-I-T-E-I underscore two one two um i will be uh putting out kind of further information that the panelists today will um will send on to me uh obviously building a lot of the um the ideas that came out of the world transformed is kind of ongoing process it's a process that's in its fairly early stages um i understand so so yeah um People's
2: local momentum, yes, groups, absolutely. That's People another website can, to look at momentum To look
0: at getting involved there. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of work to do here. I mean, there is you know, not just kind of opening up the Labour Party and its sort of um, processes for drafting kind of policy, particularly arts policy in this case, but there is you know, overturning a generation or maybe two generations worth of ideas about art and the market and the state mm-hmm. and the people uh you know i really feel like the kind of popular intellectualism of the early 1980s um that fed into things as diverse as the kind of underground film movements or kind of post-punk music or whatever a lot of that was quite deliberately crushed in the 90s i think and we're kind of seeing a really encouraging resurgence of it drawing on a lot of the tr- different traditions that we've talked about in the show today um so i think there's an awful lot of interesting work still to be done i'm sure the work will carry on at the world transformed uh next year and who knows where we'll be politically this time next year as well we may well have had another election and a different government or a different composition of the same government but i think i think this work kind of transcends party politics in any case i think the sort of the um the long revolution that, that Raymond Williams is talking about uh, you know it's a, it's a baton that's handed from from generation to generation. Uh, we've got one minute left so I don't know if any of you had any kind of closing remarks that you wanted to, to add to that or anything you suggest that listeners do that we haven't spoken about already.
2: I think just get involved, that, that build on Raymond Williams and William Morris's idea of culture is ordinary, you are creative and um, Tell us how you think that creativity could be given expression and what you need for that to be possible.
1: And I think not to just accept the way things are are inevitable, just because some people, for some people, that might be all they've known, but there are other ways of doing this and that it has been done.
3: Yes, I, th- I think um, let's, let's dream about all the possibilities in line with the kind of, Intellectual fervor that Corbyn is um, generating, um, uh, anyway. So.